Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I found the reins of empire and such powers of new acquirement with full store of friends that soon the widowed circlet of the crown was girt upon the temples of my son. He, from whose bones the anointed race begins. Hugh Capet from Dante's Purgatory. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and I am your host as we travel from Wittenberg to Westphalia through the Wars of the Reformation. This is Supplemental Episode 21.5, The Death of Western Francia and the Birth of France. As we discussed last episode, I've been struggling with where to put a summary of the final destruction of Western Francia and the emergence of France. Most of our story is going to focus on Germany and Italy for a while going forward, and I think it's important that we not be put in a situation where all of a sudden in the Thirty Years' War, France shows up out of nowhere. Still, I can't spare the time for a real proper telling of the story. There are a few podcasts out there on the history of France, but I haven't found anything narrative that's entirely to my liking yet. Let me know if you have good feels about any of the offerings, and I will check it out. But for now, I really think I need to fill this gap in our collective knowledge, and I have no time to do it. So, let's see how fast I can cover a hundred years of French history in one episode, shall we? Let's start back in 877, with the death of Louis the Stammerer. He had three sons. The eldest two shared the throne, and in the process created a northern and southern faction in the court that reflected a pre-existing cultural divide as well. The youngest son of Louis the Stammerer had actually not been born yet at the time of his father's death. He would be born in 878 and would be named Charles. After his brothers died their ahem, natural deaths, many viewed him as the last legitimate heir of Charlemagne other than Charles the Fat. Since baby Charles was obviously unfit to rule at this point, Charles the Fat got the throne. As we know, his rule lasted a hot minute, but in the meantime Western Francia was falling apart. The Bretons were long since effectively independent, and the marital alliance of the Welfs of Burgundy with the Robertians of Paris made them both effectively independent as well. The death of Charles the Fat made it possible for Louis, the son of Boso and Ermengarde, to slip back into Provence and break off that territory. 
Archbishop Fulk would further aid in this disintegration process uh, after the flight of Guy III by deciding to support the infant King Charles against Odo. Charles was at the time under the care of the Dukes of Aquitaine, who used their convenient regency to break away from Odo's regime, thus reopening the north-south divide in western Francia. Western Francia would spend the next hundred-odd years in a state of near-anarchy. So, when Odo, hero of Paris, assumed the throne, it was in the context of a realm that was going from bad to worse. He quickly found himself split between trying to rein in his magnates and fight off the Vikings, and ultimately acknowledged the overlordship of Arnulf of Carinthia, of eastern Francia, in an attempt to shore up his regime. After Odo's death, Charles, who was now old enough to be said to be acting somewhat as a king, assumed the throne and would quickly earn the regnal epithet Charles the Simple. At this point, Charles had the best claim of anyone to the entire Carolingian inheritance, but had neither the talent nor the ability to push such a claim. He was basically in the pocket of the Dukes of Aquitaine his entire reign, and was himself, well, simple. In an attempt to stop the Viking raids, he famously sold the core of Normandy to Rollo, the Viking, in return for Rollo defending the coast. Rollo took the land, made a farcical conversion to Christianity, and then began conquering all his neighbors and raiding at will, thus founding the Duchy of Normandy. Some modern historians point out that this event may be worth a little bit more looking into than it is often portrayed, but we don't have time for that. Moving on. Charles was also unable to gather an army to stop a large Magyar raid that entered Western Francia at this time, and he came up with the innovative solution of doing nothing and hoping that they would go away. Eventually they did. On the plus side, the instability in Eastern Francia meant that Charles would nominally reassert control over big stretches of Lotharingia, mostly in the Low Countries. Ultimately, his nobles had enough of Charles and elected Odo's son Robert to be the new king. Robert led the nobles of France against Charles in a battle, where most of Charles' men were Normans led by Rollo, thus making them exceptionally unpopular. Robert won the battle, but was killed in the process but the displeasure with which Charles was viewed at this point meant that he didn't win either. Charles was put in prison where he died, though his son Louis escaped to England. With Robert's heroic death, his brother-in-law, Rudolf of Burgundy, took the throne. Rudolf did a pretty good job playing whack-a-mole with the various threats he faced, fighting off the Germans under Henry the Fowler in 923, fighting off a Viking raid the next year, and then fighting a running war against the Normans for a year after that. He spent several years leading small efforts to keep the magnates in line and eliminate any Viking strongholds that were still left. In 930, a huge Magyar raid devastated Lotharingia and Provence and left before Rudolf arrived with the army. He spent five more years on internal issues until 935 when he saw off another group of Magyars who had invaded Burgundy. By the time of his death the next year, Rudolf had done a pretty decent job of starting to put the internal structure of the realm back together again while keeping out the Vikings and Magyars from the core areas of western Francia. His son, however, Hugh the Great, chose not to assume the throne, something historians have scratched their heads over ever since. Instead, he invited Charles the Simple's son, Louis, to come back from England and take the throne. This he did, and Louis IV was crowned king in 936. Unfortunately, it became very apparent that he was king at the sufferance of Hugh the Great. In an attempt to free himself from his puppet master, Louis encouraged fighting amongst the magnates, during the process of which a huge Magyar raid blew clean through western Francia all the way to the Atlantic and then returned home. As Louis worked to lessen the power of Hugh, 
he allied with Otto I of Eastern Francia, who invaded Western Francia. In a war that was fought through several years of vicious fighting, Otto managed to kick the French around pretty thoroughly, further strengthening the independence and power of the Burgundian Welfs under Hugh. After a short interlude spent fighting the Normans, Louis managed to talk Otto into realizing that he'd made Hugh the Great into a threat, and the two monarchs moved against him. He was declared excommunicate at Otto's request, and his territory was cut down to size. In the settlement, Louis managed to cobble together a somewhat sizable area of direct control by the French crown. Louis's son Lothair was another somewhat competent king, except that he fell into an alliance with the son of Hugh the Great, known to history as Hugh Capet. This alliance rapidly turned into a domination of the throne by Hugh. That said, there was no real chance for a break because Lothair spent his reign falling into and out of conflicts with the new Holy Roman Empire over border regions. Upon Lothair's death, his son, Louis the Lazy, became king. Louis didn't do much, but he only lasted a year before he died while hunting. <clears throat> there was a strong push to have his uncle, Duke Charles of Aquitaine, put on the throne, but the Robertian party managed to get Hugh Capet elected instead. Once again, Aquitaine went into revolt and became effectively independent, but this is not well remembered by history. Given the last few generations of back and forth, it would have been entirely reasonable to assume that the remaining Carolingians and the Robertians would continue to swap back and forth. But Hugh Capet's family would, through various permutations and branches, rule France until 1789, when the man his executioners called Louis Capet was deposed in the French Revolution. And as a result, many historians date the real foundation of the country of France to this election of Hugh Capet. I tend to agree with this view, if only for convenience sake. While much of the work of securing the stability of France had been done under Rudolf, and then under Louis IV and his son, a case can be made that it was the work of Hugh Capet behind the scenes under Lothair that was the biggest factor. Even so, the area directly under the control of the central government of France at the time of Hugh's coronation was laughably small. Some estimates put it at 400 square miles of directly controlled territory. As we'll discuss in a future episode, this view of control ignores the shape society had taken in the Middle Ages. He was the most powerful magnate in a realm of magnates, and as a group, they had fought off the Vikings, the Magyars, and even the Holy Roman Empire. Though the Capet family would spend the following centuries expanding their direct holdings, the power of Hugh Capet should probably not be looked on with contempt. As history is always more than just a dry recitation of facts, there are a few themes here that I would like to expand upon before we end for the day. The first issue is the failure of the Carolingian line. As is usually the case, the profound contempt shown to these later Carolingians by historians like Gibbon is, while fun, overstated. While their internal bickering did not help, obviously, I think we have shown that the fundamentals of the empire had by this point totally come to pieces. The old Carolingian experiment of trying to merge a feudal and a Roman style of rule had not worked, and a new kind of rule was needed for the new situation on the ground. Though older historians like Gibbon love to attribute this failure to a lack of virtue in the bloodline, like it's something you can inherit, even at this point there were competent and incompetent Carolingian kings. Even some of the actions that may seem silly, such as the selling of Normandy to the Vikings, were probably not quite so silly at the time. 
This is a fairly complex point, and as I said earlier, I really don't want to go into it. But suffice it to say that, despite or possibly because of their massive unpopularity, Rollo's Vikings remained fiercely loyal to Charles during his lifetime. While they went on a rampage after his death, massively expanding the duchy and becoming an enormous headache for generations of French kings, it's possible that this would not have happened if Charles had remained king. Regardless, even after Charles the Simple, there were a few good Carolingians left, and many of the useless ones were only useless because the Robertians left them no choice. This point is worth making, because it underscores the process by which the Robertians gradually usurped the throne. Initially, the two dynasties traded back and forth, based on the whims of the nobility. This was a major contributing factor to the chaos in Western Francia, and was obviously a huge waste of resources. To simplify the underlying causes, the Robertians were actual landowners in their own right, and were popular amongst the nobility, particularly in northern France. The Carolingians had legitimacy, which made them popular among the remaining Carolingian insiders, and with the clergy, as well as with anyone who had problems with the Robertians. Counterintuitively, the move that allowed the Robertians to eventually gain the throne was their decision to let the Carolingians return to power and act as titular kings. The Robertians essentially continued to rule the country, but did so as powers behind the throne. This allowed them to consolidate the power of the throne from slightly to the left, leaving the seat itself occupied by Carolingian placeholders who could accumulate the blame collectively from history and their contemporaries alike. Whether this was some sort of grand plan or a legitimate attempt to seal the breach in a society that was facing massive external threats is a debate for another time and is probably unsolvable. The second issue, and the one that will probably most affect the rest of our story going forward, is the profound chaos in Western Francia at this time. I mean, the area was a serious mess, with Provence, Burgundy, Aquitaine, Normandy, and the Breton Peninsula all out of the control of the king, the power of the central government essentially evaporated, and everything that you can assume went with it did go with it. Landholding became extremely confused, people were just stealing land left and right, feuds were going on willy-nilly, and of course the many external threats that the French faced were in no way deterred by the very, very diminished power of the central government to resist them. In effect, the power of the kings became hypothetical, and on the ground they were not much more than one warlord amongst many, and in many cases not even the most powerful. At times, the only way they were able to gather armies was through diplomacy. Given the situation, it probably shouldn't be a surprise that by the end of this period, the Holy Roman Empire would be easily the most powerful and effective force in Europe, while the French could barely maintain their borders. This raises a number of profound questions. Not to harp on this... But why, if no one was really ruling in Western Francia, was the Empire of Charlemagne not refounded under the Eastern Franks? Arnulf had a very good claim to be the Carolingian successor, and numerous Holy Roman Emperors would force the French to acknowledge their suzerainty. Partly the lack of this conquest is down to the choice of Arnulf not to overextend himself in this direction. As I've said in earlier episodes, Western Francia was such a profound mess that Arnulf was content to establish titular overlordship over the territory and let the various contenders squabble amongst themselves, leaving the door open for future conquests when his power was more consolidated. He could take care of things at home, and no one over there was going to try and invade because they were too busy going after each other. But as it happened, he never quite got around to backing up his claims over the territory, and by the time the Holy Roman Empire was more fully consolidated, it seems to have been too late. 
There are a few reasons for this. Most prominently, that Western Francia would never be as badly off as it was when Arnulf was emperor. More broadly, however, the imperial claims to Carolingian legitimacy had become very muddy by the time Arnulf's successors got around to invading. Basically, Arnulf may have had a strong claim to Carolingian legitimacy himself, but his successors did not, and so imperial claims over Western Francia were rejected by the Western Frankish nobility. Indeed, in some years, it seems that the Eastern Franks were the only group that the Western French magnates would turn out to resist. And so, either through the combined efforts of the Western Frankish magnates or through desperate acts of diplomacy, the imperial claims over France were never more than legal fictions. There are a few long-term consequences of all this that we should take away. Uh, first, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, it's just how muddy the legal situation was. In the Loire Valley and the area around Paris, it wasn't quite so bad, but in the border regions, land ownership was an absolute mess. Nobles held their land due to grants from multiple kings, records had often been destroyed, and new records were being actively forged by the church. Ultimately, legitimate claims could be made to land in this area by multiple parties, something that led to no end of conflicts, both now and in the future. Basically, watch this space. With legal titles so confused in the border regions and loyalties so divided, it probably shouldn't be a surprise that in these border regions there were no clear borders. This leads to a final point, one that I've made before but which I want to take this opportunity to underline. The consolidation of France should not be seen as the taking over and governing of a monolithic state, but as a low-level war in all directions, as I described way back in episode 3. This can be hard to visualize from a modern standpoint, so some metaphors might be in order. In modern times, we tend to think of states as well-defined entities, and the government is just the body that comes along and figures out how to run things. Some are good, some are bad, but the state itself is always there. Imagine a car here. The car is built. It exists. If Bill comes over and tries to drive the car, but he has never seen a car before, he might not do a good job, but the car is still the car. We just have to wait around for someone who knows how to drive. But at a fundamental level, that's not actually how these things work. That's not how they come into being. There's no naturally existing France. France is a construct of human beings. It had to be assembled, and in this period, it was being assembled more or less from scratch. I read about my favorite metaphor for this process in the Cambridge History of Early Modern Europe. I can't find my copy right now, so I can't give proper attribution to who came up with it, so I'm just going to say that it wasn't me and it was in that book somewhere. But the basic idea is that imagine a table that's covered with iron shavings, basically like the kid's toy Wooly Willy, where you use a magnet to move around the little iron shavings and give the guy a beard or whatever. So you have a table with metal shavings, maybe a few bigger pieces of metal, uh, and then in the middle of the table, there's an electromagnet whose power you can increase by gradually adding ele more electricity. So let's imagine that Hugh Capet plugged in the electromagnet, but ran it at its lowest setting. Each successive king nudged the power up further and further until all the metal shavings on the table were drawn into the center. You should probably further imagine that there's other electromagnets on the table, and in the areas where the two magnetic fields start to interact, there's a kind of a messy border. Now, this is not a perfect metaphor, since the metal shavings in this example do not actually add anything 
to the central magnet's power. In reality, each round of consolidations made the center more and more able to expand. Another big problem with this metaphor is that it ignores the role that the Roman and Carolingian legal system played in this process, which was profoundly important. Uh, and of course, the shared culture uh, across this continuum of population played a major role as well. Still, I think this gets at some of the basics. France was in many ways just a bunch of people, just like uh, on the table there's just a bunch of metal shavings, living out their very local lives, very isolated from each other. The process of creating France was a process of plugging those people into the political structures that were being built. Some went willingly, some did not. But in either case, power needed to be applied in order to attain compliance with the new order. What that new order is going to be is going to have to wait for a few episodes. We still need to finish up our tale of the Gadeshi, and next time we will get back to that story as we finish discussing the reign of Guy III of Spolento, or as he is now known, Emperor Guy I. Alright, so that's it for this mini-episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to check out the website, the Facebook page, keep up with me on Twitter. I do post on there sometimes. I also want to thank Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. He did the intro today, did a really great job, and so thanks very much, Ryan. And if you haven't listened to his podcast, it's it's awesome. Um, I was skeptical, like, oh, another podcast about the ancient world. It's great. It's well-researched. He has a wonderful delivery. He does a really great job, and you should all check it out. So thanks very much for listening, and uh, see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.